Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. Barry Schwartz. Barry is an author, prolific speaker and professor of psychology at Swarthmore College, where he has taught for over 46 years. In his 2004 book and TED talk, The Paradox of Choice, Barry tackled one of the great mysteries of modern life. Why is it that societies of great abundance, where individuals are offered more freedom and choice than ever before, are now witnessing a near epidemic of depression? Conventional wisdom tells us that greater choice is for the greater good, but Schwartz argues the opposite, and he made a compelling case that the abundance of choice in today's Western world is actually making us miserable. He's also the author of numerous other titles, including The Cost of Living, Practical Wisdom, and his latest book, Why We Work. Barry is a TED conference favourite, having been invited to speak on numerous occasions, and his talks have received over 15 million views. Barry, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you. Let me just make one small correction. I just retired from Swarthmore College Congratulations. in June and moved, moved to the west coast of the U.S. to be closer to my uh, kids and my grandkids. So I now have a position uh, at the University of California at Berkeley. Oh, amazing! I was talking. Um, I was talking the other day with um, with Dacker Keltner. Yes, he's a good buddy. He's he's awesome. I love it. Like you can tell, he's from California. He's got the long hair. He, lo- he, lo- he looks like he's yeah, ready for yeah. the beach. <laughs> he is to- total surfer dude. Such a surfer dude. <laughs> and that's not me. <laughs> Personally, what is it about this type of work that really motivates you? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. When I I took psychology as a freshman in college a million years ago, and I had no idea what it was. I'd never even heard of it. And it, it, it struck me that it was a way of answering or trying to answer the most fundamental questions about human beings. What, you know, why are we alive? What do we care about? What do we aspire to? Um, what affects us? And of course, you know, philosophers had asked these kinds of questions forever and use their methods, which is mostly sitting down and thinking hard, <laughs> to come up with answers. And here was this discipline that promised to actually provide answers to meaningful questions empirically, collecting data. And I was just completely captivated as an 18-year-old. Uh, I had a very charismatic uh, teacher in the introductory psychology course who has over the years become quite famous, a guy named Philip Zimbardo, and that helped Uh, And, you know, my path was set, you know, it also became clear to me that I was never going to be able to be a professional baseball player, (laughs) which was uh, which was option two. Although I must say, I gave up on that when I was about eight. It became obvious to me that that wasn't going to happen. In in your latest book, Why We Work, I mean, I know you referenced this quite a a staggering statistic, like a, a quarter of a quarter of a million people were surveyed across 140 different countries. And the results are pretty alarming, aren't they? They are. Uh, you know, to, to summarize, roughly 10% of people are really engaged by their work. 90% are either unengaged, which is basically to say they're just mailing it in, putting in their time and punching a clock, or they're actively disengaged. In other words, they hate going to work every day. And, you know, the thing... The thing that's so striking about this is that this is what we spend at least half our waking lives doing. And the question is, is it inevitable that we have to spend half of our waking lives doing something we don't want to do in a place where we don't want to be? And what I try to suggest in the book is that there's nothing inevitable about it at all. You can 
you know, you can turn work into the sort of thing that no one would dream of doing except for a paycheck, you know, assembly line work or call center work where your, your, your performance is measured simply by how many calls you do in the space of a day and not by whether you actually satisfy the customers who are calling. You can turn work into these, you know, grimy grinds of boredom and meaninglessness, but it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, it's just that when people look around more and more um, in the world, all they see is jobs like this. Yeah. And what that means is it, it leads them to set extremely low aspirations. You know, I'll work to get paid. And then in my spare time, which we have less and less of, I'll live my real life and I'll be a real person. And I think it's, um, it's unnecessary and it's an incredible waste of the most precious resource we have, namely us. And so the question is, can you uh, think about revisioning work so that it remains productive and, and profitable and at the same time, people actually want to show up every day and they feel like when they show up, they're going to learn something, they're going to be challenged, they're going to have some control over what they do, and they're going to get some meaning out of their activity. And I think the, the evidence is that when you create jobs like this, you increase productivity, not decrease it. So it's better for the boss and it's better for the employee, which makes you wonder why the hell work isn't organized in this way. That was the interesting bit, because I guess... I guess a standard, uh, an obvious answer might be, you know, about that whole, you know, assembly line productivity. But the research of Jeffrey Pfeffer, among many other people, is now showing that engaged workers are more productive, they're more profitable. And so it's it, it's such an obvious choice now. Why why would you not create companies and structures where, you know, people are allowed to like flourish and like love being there? It, it seems so black and white, so obvious. It does seem black and white. And when something that obvious happens, uh, you know, it begs for an explanation. And I'm not sure the explanation I offered is the right one. But what I suggest is that there's been an ideology that started in the 18th century with Adam Smith and has been perpetuated ever since that people hate to work. And the only reason they show up is that they're getting paid. And so as long as you pay them, it doesn't matter what you have them do. So why not make the jobs they do simple, effortless, repeatable, and, with, and not requiring much training or expertise, and then the people become interchangeable parts just like the machines, right? You show up at work, takes me 20 minutes to train you. You get bored. I can just throw you out and hire somebody else, and in 20 minutes, that person's making a contribution too. If I invest a lot in making you a, a real contributing worker, which means making the job you do more complicated, then if you leave, it's a huge loss for me. So that was the ideology. And everything we've done in industrializing the planet has been guided by that ideology. So now you wake up in 2017 and you look around and you think, well, you know, work is just toil. It's this, you know, you can't, expect to get anything from your work except a paycheck because look around that seems to be why everybody's working so it, it is a striking thing that you know these um, uh, people who run companies are leaving money on the table by insisting on organizing work in the way they do but they are and you know there are these fads in management theory every 20 or 30 years somebody comes up with a new approach to management 
the human relations approach, theory why. I mean, every 20 or 30 years you can count on it. And invariably, these new approaches are like one another. They're talking about how do you get people who are engaged, committed, uh, and get meaning out of their work. And they have a, you know, they're fashionable for a little while, and then they fade away. And the old model, the assembly line model, just reemerges. It's like it's bulletproof. Um, and it really breaks my heart. You know, the reason I first got interested in this is that, you know, this ideology didn't describe any of the people I knew. Nobody I knew worked for paycheck, which is not to say that they would continue working if they didn't get paid. They did have to make a living, but that wasn't why they worked. It was a byproduct. You know, they worked because they cared about what they were doing. Uh, and yet here was a model that seemed to be applied to everybody, except it applied to none of the people that I knew. And I don't think it applied to the people who created the model either. I think there was a kind of elitism, which basically said, well, people like us care about what we do, but the unwashed multitudes, they're only in it for a paycheck. So you, know, you create two classes, the people who are engaged by their work, a tiny fraction of the world, and everybody else. Mm. So, and I think that was because I'm sure that the, you know, the economists who had this model didn't think of themselves in the way they thought of the workers, but they were special. And all I'm trying to suggest is, no, they're not special. This is what everybody wants, almost. And it becomes almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that you think they're not, you know, the whatever, the workers, they're not engaged in their work. You create these models of just monotonous, like, soul-destroying work. So, therefore, they're not engaged in the work. And then it just, it just, it's, it's, a, it's just a feedback loop. Exactly. You do exactly that. And then you look at them and you say, see, I told you they didn't they weren't engaged by their work. Mm. <laughs> and you go, well, of course, they're not. Who would be engaged by doing work like that? Why is why is a false belief in, say, maths or physics, for example, not nearly as dangerous, in your opinion, as a false belief in, say, human psychology? Right. So I think this is a key all this is true of all the social sciences is the difference between the natural sciences and the social sciences. And here's, I think the key, um, the planets have absolutely no interest in our theories about the planets. Nothing we think and write and say about planetary motion is going to change planetary motion. Uh, and so you don't when you're when you're formulating explanations in the natural world, you don't have to worry that there's some kind of a feedback loop. You know, um, gene transmission works this way. But if I write a paper about it, maybe the genes will start doing it differently. That's not going to happen. Right. On the other hand, when you have a theory about human beings, that theory becomes an input. That can easily change human beings. Um, and what that means is that there's a sense in which you're trying to understand a moving target. And as, as long as you keep your theory a secret, you don't have to worry that your theory will change behavior. But <laughs> once people know about it and it becomes an input, it can alter their approach. And all of a sudden, your theory is not true anymore. And I think any science that has to do with human beings uh, – uh, uh, or at least human psychology, I suppose if you're studying human biology, maybe not, but human psychology is susceptible to the possibility that the theory will alter 
the phenomenon that it's trying to explain. Can you give a practical? Can you give a practical example? Like obviously, we talked about Adam Smith um, earlier. That's one example. How about another one where maybe an idea, an incorrect idea, has then shaped? Well, I, I do have another example that I think is is quite is quite pervasive in its significance. My explanation of it, I should I should make clear, is, a spe- is speculative, but nonetheless, most of us think that you're, you're, how intelligent you are is basically fixed. Some people win the lottery, the genetic lottery, and some people lose it. Some people are smart and some people are not. And that's it. You know, and then the question is, how close can you come to realizing the, your potential, which is limited by some piece of your biology? So, you know, that could be true. There's no reason why, in principle, that's not true. But a psychologist named Carol Dweck has done some very, very important work with kids showing that kids sort of have two different approaches when they go to school. Um, one kid, one kind of kid is interested in demonstrating their ability. And the other kind is interested in increasing their ability. Now, this doesn't make much difference in the kindergarten, first grade, but in second grade, third grade, you actually start getting stuff to do that you get wrong. You get math problems that you can't do. And the kids who want to demonstrate their ability um, respond to failure, getting things wrong badly. They avoid challenges and they basically do what they can to get approval. The kids who are interested in getting smarter want to seek challenges. You know, every mistake they make is an opportunity to learn. And so what you see happening is in second grade-ish, around second grade, you have these two groups of kids who look pretty much the same. And then the the achievement-oriented kids sort of stay flat and the mastery-oriented kids go up. And what happens is that they get more and more different over time. Now, why does this happen? It turns out that achievement-oriented kids have what Dweck calls a fixed naive theory of intelligence. They have the the theory of intelligence that I just described to you. This is how smart we are. We can't get smarter. So why don't I just get as many pats on the head as I can? The mastery-oriented kids have what she calls an incremental theory of intelligence. Intelligence is not fixed. You can get smarter. And damn it, that's my mission. So here's a case where if you believe that intelligence is fixed, then you will not challenge kids. And the result will be that intelligence is fixed because you don't get smarter unless you try to get smarter. And if everyone thinks you can't get smarter, no one will try to get smarter. And the result will be that nobody does get smarter. So that's another example. That makes sense to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost like um, I often think in like sort of parallel things. And when you're saying that, it kind of reminds me of you have like a baby elephant and they have something tied around their legs next to like a tree trunk and then they grow up and then they, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they, rather than it being behind, around a tree trunk, it's then by a log, but they're so, um, they're, they've just grown up knowing that they, they, they can't break away. And so then when they're these huge, great, you know, African, like massive elephants, then they could easily just like rip this like log off, but they're so uh, they're yep. so they they've got this belief that they can't get away. Then that is that's their that's their world, I guess. 
Yes. And of course, if you believe you can't get away, you won't try to get away. Absolutely. And then you won't get away. And then rinse and repeat, self-fulfilling prophecy again and exactly. again. There's a lot of research in, um, in social psychology and in the psychology of emotion about the importance of construal. Construal? Construal. You know, something happens to you, but, it, but what really determines its impact is not so much what happened, but how you think about what happened, yeah, how you interpret it. You know, um, you get a B on a paper. Is that a good grade or a bad grade? Well, the answer is it sort of depends. It's just a grade. And the whole process, the, so the question is, how do we construe the things that happen to us? And where do we get the tools for doing these construals? Well, to some degree, we get these tools from the way we're taught to explain things by our parents and our teachers. To some degree, we get these construals by the dominant theories out there in psychology. Psychology teaches us how to interpret our experiences. And in that way, since how we interpret experiences is such a big factor, what that means, in effect, is that by teaching us how to interpret experiences, it's changing us. So we're trying to, psychologists are trying to understand the moving target. I was watching a panel debate um, uh, where there was, I think it was like four or five of you on stage, and I think you, you were referencing something along those lines, where it's this, almost you've got a pie chart of happiness. So say you've got 50% is your biology, you know, the way you are. Um, we, we assume that, you know, the job, the relationship we have, the car, we, we, in a mentally we'd assume this would be a much large piece of the pie, but actually that's only like 10% of our happiness. And then that 40% is the mindset, how we interpret situations, how we react to them, how we, you know, that, that how we construe stuff. And it's, it's, it's just an interesting, like how it's all divided, how um, we, we give this huge amount of weighting to that 10%, you know, the, uh, the what school you get into, what your job is, what your relationships like, but that's that's uh, you know a, a meager ten percent, which actually is, is is almost it's pretty much nothing in you know, in the big scale of it. No, no, that's right. You know, which is not you know people can have spectacular things happen to them or horribly tragic things happen to them, and I don't want to minimize the impact of real events in your life, but so much of the action is so much of what happens to us is ambiguous. And when that's true, the action is really all in our, how we interpret it, how we construe it. So there's a when I give talks about the problem of too much choice, one of the points I make is that the, the problem of too much choice is especially significant for people who are out to get the best. I call them maximizers, because if you're out to get the best, you have to look at every possibility. And when there are hundreds of possibilities, it becomes completely daunting. And eventually you stop and you pick something and you're convinced that something else that you haven't gotten around to looking at would be better. The grass is greener. Which means you're not satisfied with what you've got. Well, I have a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine that I show to illustrate this of a young woman wearing a college sweatshirt. And the sweatshirt says brown, but my first choice was Yale. I don't know how many of the people watching this are going to know what this even refers to, but these are two extremely elite American universities. And you look at it and you laugh. But the thing to appreciate is how sad it is to imagine that what's on the sweatshirt is also in this woman's head. So she's at Brown, a spectacular institution, and she spends four years at Brown thinking she'd be better off at Yale. And you know what? She's not going to get nearly as much out of Brown as Brown has to offer. 
Because every day she's going to get out of bed saying, oh, I wish I was at Yale. Oh, I wish I was at Yale. And the result, again, self-fulfilling. How was Brown? It was okay. If she had gone with a different sweatshirt that said, wow, I'm at Brown, it would have been spectacular. Not just because she was thinking it was spectacular. Sure, sure. Because if she has that enthusiasm, she's going to she's gonna just suck it dry of everything that it has to offer instead of passively crawling through the four years so she can get to the other side and get a job as an investment banker for some day. <laughs> so it's very, very powerful. Um, the the, uh, the construal effect is extremely powerful. And uh, uh, in general, we underestimate its importance. On, on, on that example of the Brown and Yale or, or anything like that with this, with this overwhelming choice and, you know, it's, it's, it's only going to get, you know, it's only, it's, it's only going one way. We're only getting more and more input choice apps, phones. There's just, it's an overwhelming amount. Like how can, I guess, first step identifying that there is maybe a problem. There is this crazy choice. So maybe at least if we, if we identify it, then maybe we can do something about it. But what are some of the things that we can maybe be doing about this? Well, that's really, I think the most important thing, um, because if you ask people about this, almost invariably, they will say, the more choice I have, the better. Yeah. And if you give people the opportunity to select in a, from a choice rich or a choice poor environment, they will all choose the choice rich environment. And what economists have said is, listen, adding an option has to be good because if, you don't, if you're not interested, you'll ignore it. And if you are interested, I've made your life better. So every time we add an option, we make somebody's life better. We make nobody's life worse. So we ought to offer as many options as possible. So appreciating that choice, while incredibly important and positive, also has this negative associate, these negative attributes associated with it when it becomes overwhelming. You can structure your life so that you are you're not facing unlimited choices. You know, you can. When you need a new cell phone, instead of seeing what's out there, you call your friend who just got one and said, did you like yours? Yep. Okay. And you just get the same one, <laughs> you know, and you've taken a project that could take weeks and reduced it to a project that takes five minutes. Are there differences between cell phones? Yes. Are they significant? Probably not. Um, so you've just taken that off the table. Uh, knowing that too much choice is a problem enables you to limit the amount of the number of options you consider and uh, and the domains in your life where you opt out of choosing altogether. And so I think that's an important first step. The second important step is for people to learn that really what they need is a good enough result, not the best result. And that doesn't mean that you have no standards. It doesn't even mean you have low standards. You can have high standards. A good enough restaurant in London is not the same as the best restaurant in London. There are lots of restaurants in London that are good enough. There's only one that's the best, and you'll spend your life looking for it. And every meal you have will be a disappointment until you find it. You know, but by then your teeth will have fallen out, and you won't be able to enjoy it. Wow. Yeah. But these are very hard sells for young people. Yeah. You know, young people think they're masters of the universe throw those options at me. I can handle it. And why should I settle at this point in my life? You know, settling is what people do only after they failed. 
and that's not me. So I find it extremely difficult to uh, convince young people of this. Older people seem to learn from experience that choice is good, but there can be too much of a good thing. And that good enough is pretty much always good enough. But it would be nice if we could, uh, you know, spare people the years of painful experience uh, and give it to them in a pill so that they don't have to sort of suffer their way to these insights. When you when you look at the world, in particular with regards to human psychology, and we might mention some of them earlier, or these can be like totally fresh things. Like, what are you what are you most concerned about? And then on the flip side, what are you most encouraged about? I'm. I think what I'm most concerned about is the uh, is two things. One is the incredibly destructive effect of the intense competition that people now feel they are in to be successful. Uh, an economist named uh, uh, Robert Frank wrote a book about a decade ago called The Winner-Take-All Society, in which he argued that because of these the transformation in telecommunications, um, you know, you don't need amateur theater companies because anyone can see professionals online somewhere. And so all of a sudden, all the amateur theater companies disintegrate. And what that means is that lots of good actors who are not the best actors stop being actors. So the pressure is on you not simply to be good, but to be the best, because only the best are able to actually make a life uh, out of you know performing in the theater. And so there's incredible pressure on people and the pressure is imposed at a very young age. Parents impose it on their kids. Teachers impose it on their kids. Peers impose it on one another. I think it really is very destructive to education. It closes the mind instead of opening the mind. Um, it makes it so that getting to college is the goal, is the end point, not the start. You know, college should not be the, the finish line. It should be the starting line. But when you have killed yourself to get into Yale or Brown and you get in, you think, ah, now I can relax. So we're burning people out um, with this intense competition. That bothers me. And the other is the continued reliance on using incentives, external incentives to get people to do things instead of asking, how can we make the, the tasks that we want people to do intrinsically valuable? I think you know, bribes are a poor substitute for the satisfaction that comes with being engaged in something that you believe is worthwhile and doing it well. It's the easy fix, yeah. except it isn't yeah. really a fix. It's just it's a weak substitute. So those those are two things that um, discourage me. What encourages me is people are much more aware of how the mind works and how emotions work than they used to be. And I think that's at least making some of them more demanding of themselves and of the outside world than they were previously. And as I said a few minutes ago, there's reason to hope that if talented young people demand certain things from their work, the people who employ them will have to supply those things or else they'll lose talented people. So I'm, I'm optimistic that the increasing psychological sophistication will actually push people 
to demand changes in the social world that enable people to live more meaningful and satisfying lives. We'll see. I, I got to say, from my perspective, the catastrophic recent U.S. presidential election is not a source of optimism. <laughs> On the other hand, there's been an amazing uh, um, a rising up of people in protest, something that, that really hasn't been present in this country for almost 40 years. And it seems like it's going to sustain itself. And this may produce a kind of political reawakening in what has had become a pretty complacent society. So in the end, it may actually be a good thing if we survive the next few years. It may actually be a good thing because we'll have much more engaged and informed citizens than we had uh, three months ago. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? The most important uh, dimension of a fulfilled life is the sense that what you've done has meaning, which means to me that what you've done has positive effects on the lives of other people. And it doesn't have to be grandiose like curing cancer. It could be small, but still, you know, you know, it, it, it's, uh, people should feel fulfilled if they die knowing that in the course of their lives, they've improved the lives of others. Uh, and that should be a pretty good criterion for deciding what's worth doing and what isn't. Um, uh, And, uh, and I think, you know, if we're attentive to that, we can get me, we can find meaning in activities that don't seem all that meaningful. It doesn't seem like cutting hair is all that meaningful. But if you think about the effect of a new hairdo on the life of the person who got it for the, some period of time going forward, you're having an enormous impact on this person. You know, she leaves the shop feeling more self-confident. She presents a more welcoming face to the world. People are thus more responsive to her because she's more inviting. And uh, her life has been changed for a brief time, all because of the work you did. I don't think people who cut hair think about that so much. If they did, they all of a sudden the job they do would become much more significant than they probably think it is. So to some degree, again, it's about construal. It's about asking yourself, how is my work going to make other people's lives better? And partly that will change the way you do your work, but it will certainly change the way you think about your work. Uh, and that's a good thing. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? They can solve that question every day. Boom. Just do it. Just do it. And again, you don't have to be thinking in the stars. It doesn't have to be curing cancer. You know, I'm in a call center. Have I solved people's problems or not? They call because their computer won't boot up. Have I solved their problem? If I have, I've changed their day, maybe more than their day. Isn't that great? That a little bit of knowledge that I have can improve someone else's life. The opportunities are all over the place, but we need to We don't normally think about what we do in that way. And the result is that we deprive ourselves, I think, of a lot of uh, potential satisfaction. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you, your books, your work? Where can we send them? 
Well, if they Google my name, that'll probably one of the things that they see will be uh, my website, which doesn't have a lot of information. And if they go to the TED website, they can watch the three TED Talks I gave and in uh, an hour, essentially learn everything I have to say about anything. <laughs> Perfect. So you've you've been working this stuff for 46 years and then you're going to digest it. We've got one hour and then we, we can tap into your brain. So thank you. That's exactly. I've wasted 46 years <laughs> and you can get the product in one hour. It's like um, a very fine one. That's a pretty good swap. I'm going to take that. <laughs> Barry, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you.